Well, there is still much work to be done. The Bible tells us to work while it is day because night is coming where no man can work. And um, we are coming to the moment in Revelation when it's getting to be night. It's be night for the unbelievers and the glorious uh, light of day for, uh, for Israel and for the people of God. So I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation 19 tonight. We've simply titled it, The King Returns or The King Arrives. And we've come to what, what is clearly the mountain peak of, of Revelation. If the crucifixion of Christ is the hinge point of the Bible, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the pinnacle, then surely chapter 19 is the, the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19 and 20 reveal the return of the king and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. And then, as I said, what follows is a new heaven and a new earth. It also describes for us the end, the end of men, the end of the time of Gentiles, and the battle of, of Armageddon. The return of Jesus Christ will be a glorious thing, be a glorious thing for the earth. In Romans chapter 8, it says, even today, even right now, creation groans, waiting for the day, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to be liberated from the curse, from the, from the fall. It will bring blessing to the earth whenever the Lord comes. It will bring blessing to believing Israel. As the Bible says, that they will look upon the one whom they've pierced, the one that they have rejected, and then they will enter into the, into the earthly kingdom. That passage, if you want to to read something interesting, go back to that passage in Zechariah that Jesus quoted this morning and read it in, in its totality. You will find there that there's not only uh, Jesus applies it to the disciples, but there is a, a, a further application to all of Israel. You remember I pointed out to you this morning that, that God's sword would be, uh, would, would be awakened against His servant, against my shepherd, but then his hand would also be against the little ones, against the, the, the sheep. And that's an application to Israel. And then he's going to gather them all back together. So the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will be a blessing to, to believing Israel. It'll be a time of rejoicing for us, for the saints, as we saw last time. For we will come with him, riding behind him on... On the white horse, we'll rejoice at the coming of the of the Lord. We look forward to the blessed hope. It's a it's a wonderful thing, but it will mean doom to many, and it'll bring judgment. And that's the passage, the section of the coming of Christ that we have before us tonight. This passage of Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21. We've already covered verses 11 through 16. 17 through 21 covers the final execution of the ungodly. The capture of the beast and the false prophet, that's the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are Satan's leaders at the end time, 
And then chapter 20 starts with the binding of Satan himself. And then the kingdom takes off. So let's read Revelation 19 verses 11 through 20. And we'll take the on-ramp that we've already, that we've already traveled. But we're going to focus on verses 17 through 21 tonight. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no man knows. No one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble yourselves for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And we've outlined this very simply, three scenes at the king's return. Three things that John sees. And first of all, he sees the king's arrival in verses 11 through 16. Then he sees this this assault of God, this war, this gathering of an army which has both the, the Antichrist and the religious leader, the false prophet, and all of the kings and the minions that, that, are, that are operating on the earth under Satan's control. They're gathered for a war, and God brings them that war. There's the Almighty's assault. And then there's the rebel's abolishment, where he actually lays hold of the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he casts them both alive into, into the lake of fire. And we saw the king's arrival last time, but let me remind you of some details because I don't think you ever get enough of the Lord's return. There's the king's arrival. And John describes his announcement, his apparel, his army, and his action. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. There's the announcement. It's John sees... And he says, behold, he sees the Lord in heaven coming before he ever sees him on the earth. And John sees this figure on a white horse, and he can tell who he is. And you can tell who he is by his apparel. He's called faithful and true. 
Angels are not called that. The Lord Jesus Christ is called that. He's come to wage war. The Bible tells us that Jesus is returning the second time, not as the, the humble lamb, but as the ferocious lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming in judgment. John says his eyes were like a flame of fire in verse 12. It's the exact same description that he gives of Jesus at the very first vision in Revelation chapter 1. You remember when John is on the Isle of Patmos and he sees the vision? He sees the vision of the Lord. He describes him to us. And part of his description, he has eyes like, like fire, has a penetrating gaze. He sees all, knows all, even the motives of individuals. And this one that John sees wears many diadems because he is king of kings and he's lord of lords. He doesn't just have one crown, he has many crowns. He has three names. One is unknown. It's unknown by men. One is the Word of God. He is the Creator, just like in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And then he's called also King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All three are important titles, and if you want to know what each of those mean, the significance of it, i tell you to get the, the message from the last time. He also comes with an army, though, and that army doesn't fight. Look at verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse. So whoever this army is comes with the Lord at his second coming, at his return, and they're called his army, and they're also coming on white horses. And we have a specific description of who these individuals are. John sees a great army behind the king, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And as we saw last time, that's exactly how the saints are described, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 8. You want to look at that? You can see it very clearly. It was given to her, that's the bride of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are not angels. Very clearly they're not angels. They're the saints of, of God. Old Testament saints, no doubt. Tribulation saints, no doubt. But it clearly includes the church, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when he comes, he acts. It's his action. Look at verse 15. Here's what he does. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will strike down the nations first, he'll obliterate all of his enemies, and then he will rule the nations from Jerusalem in his kingdom. All believers enter the kingdom and for a thousand years they are there, and then rebels will rise from those who are born in the kingdom. So he will obliterate the rebels, and then he will rule the believers that enter the kingdom. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. That's the destruction that's coming. What he brings to his enemies before the kingdom comes is undiluted judgment. It's God's fierce wrath. It's the wrath that has been stored up. You are children of wrath outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each sin is building up behind that, that dam. And when you come to Christ, the, the, your sin is obviously placed on, on, on Christ, on, on the cross. He absorbs that wrath for you, being children of wrath. And then, for those who don't, it's unleashed. And here it is unleashed on the earth. He'll strike down the nations. 
And verses 17 and 18 describes that war. Here's the Almighty's assault. The next thing John sees is a new scene, and it's, it's a scene of war. He sees an angel first. There is a feathered invitation, and then there is a foul feast. How do you like that for some little homiletical wrangling there, huh? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, in the midst of heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings. And he, and he goes on. John sees an angel standing. He sees the Lord coming. He sees an army with the Lord. He sees what that army is going to do on the earth. And now he sees an angel. And that angel is crying with a loud voice, meaning he's announcing something. To cry. You've seen probably in old movies or read about the town crier before their, before their microphones or anything else. He goes out on the, on the corner. Hear ye, hear ye. He's, he's making an announcement. This angel is making an announcement. His light ignites the sky. His voice fills the earth. But notice who the announcement is to. The announcement is to birds. It's not to men. Now, all the times before when the angels are making announcements, the announcements are to men, or the announcements are to, to John. And when the announcements are to men, all the other times in Revelation, it's to repent. I mean, God is so long-suffering and so gracious, even when He is pouring out His judgment, He's, he's calling men to, to repent, to warn them of the danger coming. But there's no such mercy here. Those days are gone. This is a call to the birds flying in the air to assemble for a feast. This is a battle scene. At least that's what the nations of the world think that it is. The kings of the earth and the rulers of this world come together to fight against the Lord. And you say, how foolish. How could they ever even think about defeating the Lord? Don't ever think sin is logical. Why would anyone go to heaven rather than hell? Is that logic? Why would anyone reject the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and taste the bitter fruit of sin all of their life? Is, is that logical? Why will someone self-destruct in sin? It's not logic. Don't think that unbelievers have logic. Don't think that you can reason with them into the kingdom. You're not going to be able to reason with them into the kingdom. The only thing that will bring them into the kingdom is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the only thing that you have, the only tool that you have. Apologetics and reasoning are for the saints. They have a natural mind, you have a spiritual mind. The natural man does not understand the things of God. God has to ignite that truth in their heart because the God of this world has blinded their minds. But you are blessed. You have a spiritual mind. You can understand the Word of God. Isn't that a blessing? Amen. There's a point in time in my life and in your life before you came to Christ. Maybe you can't remember this because you were a child whenever you were born again. But there was a point in time in my life that I wanted anything to do with the Bible. Whenever I came to the Lord, I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I surely didn't know anything about Revelation. I didn't want to know the Bible. And even whenever I read the Bible... I didn't understand what it says. Have you ever heard that from somebody? I don't like to read the Bible. It's hard to understand. I don't want to understand. You know, I don't really enjoy reading the Bible. Did you know that's a massive red flag and a problem? 
Did you know one of the evidences of being saved is that you desire to read and take in the Word of God? That's what Peter says, isn't it? You yearn for the sincere milk of the Word. Did you know that it's not my job or any other preacher's job to make you thirsty or hungry? It's my job to feed those who are already thirsty and already hungry. Did you know that? That's exactly what the Bible says. So if you don't enjoy the Word of God or the preaching of the Word of God or reading the Word of God or feeding on the Word of God, that is a massive, massive problem. And here, the Word of God goes to birds, the kings of the earth. And they've been gathered since Revelation 16.4. You remember? The last judgment that comes, the last bowl, dries up the Euphrates River to allow the kings to come across it and assemble. That's Revelation 16.4. And they assemble for war, but God says to the birds, assemble for another supper. Now, back in chapter or verse 7 of Revelation 19, I've already referenced it once, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the first supper in, in Revelation 19. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Believers are told to rejoice and be glad because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And here's the second supper. This supper, though, look at it, is called the great supper of God. The angel cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midst of heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the great supper of God. The same word is used. It's the main meal of the day. In this supper, the birds are being summoned to feed on the flesh of men. Kind of a gruesome picture, isn't it? Now, I live uh, on a road. There, There's a subdivision, but there's still pastures along the... The, the side and deer that run out in the midst and skunks and squirrels and everything else. And I was on the way to church this morning and there was a little gray squirrel in the middle of the road and he was not eating nuts or frolicking. He'd already been flattened and he was nasty. And here, you, you'll see them there and sometimes a deer will, will hit a car and somebody will move it over into the, into the, into the ditch and it'll lay there until somebody comes around and picks it up. It's, it's pretty disgusting, isn't it? And here, God calls birds to assemble to eat the flesh of men. You'll see those birds or those skunks or those deer. You'll see buzzards, vultures come along, and they'll be picking at them. And they'll, they'll stay there to the very last minute until the car is almost ready to hit them. And then they'll fall off, and the minute you're gone, they'll come back. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a time of reward and blessing. The great supper of God, the second supper, is a time of judgment and death. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but even this very day, Israel is a bird watcher's paradise. Did you know that? I understand you know that a lot of the tourism is in Israel is for pilgrims and people going to see the Holy Land. But did you know that one of the major, major, major tourism industries in Israel are bird watchers? People that actually go to Israel to bird watch. Do you know why that is? It's a land bridge between Europe and Africa. The location is, is a midway point between the migrations. Most of the birds leave Europe in the fall, and they fly right through the Middle East, right through the peninsula there, right over Israel, in order to make their way to Africa. 
and then they make their long journey back in the spring. There are even species that arrive in the wintertime. Are you ready for this? Experts estimate that during the migration season, 500 million birds pass through Israel. Many of them land in the Hula Valley. One bird watcher counted no fewer than 8,700 black storks within an hour and a half in the Beit Shean Valley. That's the largest flock of this species ever seen. 500 million birds migrating through Israel. 500 million going up, 500 million going back. Here's another interesting fact. More Israeli jets have been downed by birds than their enemies. Did you know that? And there's no commercial pilot that flies into Israel that is not aware of the danger of the birds. Owls and hawks and pelicans and cranes and long-legged buzzards, they all come through. And those 500 million and then some will be called to stop, not on the midway point in migration from Africa to Europe or vice versa, but they'll be called to stop at the great supper of God to feed on the flesh of God's enemies. You tell me the Bible's not true. These and more will be there to feed on the aftermath of God's wrath. Look at verse 18. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men. Listen to this repetition. And the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. There's not only a feathered invitation, there is a foul feast. The angel takes great pains to describe the army, the army of the beast, and it's made up of all classes of men. That's the point of the repetition. Small and great, bond and free, kings and captains and mighty men, even their horses will fall. And the point is, all men there. And the Bible says that God offers salvation to all men, doesn't He? Listen to Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. This is Paul talking on the Mars Hill. And he's preaching the gospel to him. And although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, He now commands all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere are called to repent. Now, we know that not all men will be saved, but all are, be to, all are to be called to to salvation. Turn back to Romans chapter 2, verse 9, if you would. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. Now, I'll show you what the angel's emphasizing here. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. This is the condemnation section of Romans. Everyone, everywhere is without excuse. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. Salvation came to the Jew first and then the Greek. And tribulation and distress will come to the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And look at verse 11. 
for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, having not the law, they're a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts accusing them or excusing, defending them. And look at verse 16. On the day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Tribulation is coming on every soul because all have sinned. And judgment is without partiality. The gospel is offered without partiality. And tribulation and judgment will come without partiality. Turn back to Revelation chapter 19. And that's what the angel is emphasizing here. The kings and the flesh of commanders and horses and free men and slaves, small and great, God's judgment will come without partiality. You'll not escape it if you have money. You'll not escape it if you're poor and humble. You'll not escape it if you're a king. You'll not even escape it if you're an animal. MacArthur quotes an old commentator who describes this scene, and I want to read it to you. He says, this text tells an awful story. It tells of the greatest of man-made food for vultures, of kings and leaders strong and confident, devoured in the field with no one to bury them, of those who thought to conquer heaven's anointed king rendered helpless even against the timid birds. The great conqueror comes down, he rides on the bright horse, flies upon the wings of the wind, smoke goes up from his nostrils and devouring fire out of his mouth. He moves amid storms and darkness from which the lightning hurls its bolt and hailstones mingled with fire. Wouldn't you like to be able to talk like that? He roars out of Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem until the heavens and the earth shake. He dashes forth in the fury of his own incensed greatness amid clouds of fire and smoke. The sun frowns, the mountain melts, and split at his presence. The hills bow from their place and skip like lambs. The waters are dislodged from their channels. The sea rolls back with howling fear. The sky is rent and folds upon itself like a collapsed tent. It is the day for executing an armed world, a world in covenant with hell to overthrow the authority and the throne of God and everything terrified nature joins to single to signal the deserved vengeance. End quote. All believers will fall, but this is just a prelude to the destruction of the leaders of the beast and the the, fraud, the false prophet. Look, if you at verse 19, here's the rebels' abolishment. And there the enemies defined, and then there's the enemies divided. Look at 
how Jesus or who Jesus defines as his primary enemies. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. There are at least three that are singled out here. We've already seen the armies of the world. They're gathered. The birds are gathered for what's getting ready to happen right now. There's the beast. There's the kings and their armies, which we've already, we've already got. They're not, not identified specifically. They're lumped together in a group. And then there's also the false prophet. So the ones, the two, I should say, that are, that are specified in this text are the beast and the false prophet. And you're going to see that God's got a special judgment for them. These are all the rebels who protest and fight against God and His Christ on the earth. So who's the beast? Well, we've already seen that in Revelation many times. It's the Antichrist. It's the world ruler. Now, don't get the idea that this is somehow some angel or superhuman individual. This is a man. The Antichrist will be a satanically fueled human being. And the false prophet will also be a satanically fueled human being. The beast is the Antichrist, the world ruler, and he was introduced all the way back in chapter 11. And he's described in chapter 13. Turn back to Revelation 11. I'm going to make you work a little bit. Look at Revelation 11, verse 7. And when they'd finished their testimony, the beast comes up out of the abyss and will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie the streets. That's the, against the two, the two witnesses. And Revelation 19 also describes kings and armies. Turn over to Revelation 17, verse 12, because we're told specifically there who the kings and the armies are. Revelation seventeen twelve through 14. Chapter 17 says there are ten kings introduced under the control of the beast, of the Antichrist. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received the kingdom, but they received authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. That's the Antichrist. And look at verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called the chosen and the faithful. Now, that is a mouthful verse, isn't it? Here's exactly who the kings are, who the armies are. They're under the control of the Antichrist. And they'll give that control, and they'll do exactly what Revelation 19 says. They'll wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb's going to overcome them. Here's a prediction before that ever happens. Because He's Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. There's the identification of the army of the Lord. So we know who the beast is. And we know who the, the kings and the armies are. 
The Antichrist has rulers over ten areas of the world. There is armies. That's what the, these ten horns are representing. And they'll all be collected in the Valley of Armageddon. And so now we have to identify the false prophet. So turn, if you would, back to Revelation 13, verse 11, because there we're introduced to the false prophet. And we've already preached through these verses. Again, if you want more detail... You can read it. Verse 12, he exercises all authority over the first beast. And in his presence, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him perform, to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has now come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak. And as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed... And he calls us all, watch this, small and great, rich and poor, free men and slaves, you heard this before, to be given the mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here's the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man and his number is six hundred and. 66. So here is the false prophet. The Antichrist is the world ruler. The false prophet is the one that's the religious leader who does pseudo signs and wonders, and he props up the religious ruler, props him up as God. And everybody is to worship the beast, small and great. And all of them have to take his mark, swear loyalty to him, allegiance to him, and worship him in order to operate in that economy. They couldn't buy or sell. And these two leaders meet their doom. Turn back to Revelation 19. Look what God does to them. Verse 20. So here's the enemies defined. The Antichrist... The earthly ruler who promises peace and halfway through the tribulation period declares himself to be God. The false prophet who props him up. All of the armies of the world who are following them, small and great, they're assembled. And verse 20, and the beast was seized. God lays hold of him. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And now we're beginning into the enemies divided. Look at you at verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, that's Christ, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And there's the end. So here the enemies are defined, and now they're divided. God has a 
does something specifically with the Antichrist and with the false prophet, and for the rest of the army, the kings in the army, he just slays them, he kills them, and the birds feed on their flesh. But those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Notice these are two men who Satan used. Notice these two are alive whenever they're captured and thrown into the lake of fire. And notice they're thrown in a brand new place. This is the first time anybody enters the lake of fire. It's the first time it's mentioned. The beast and the false prophet are captured. They're seized. That's what the word means. Their word means they're laid hold of and both are cast into the lake of fire. It's the first mention of the final place of torment. There's hell where men are separated from God and it is a place of fire and a place of torment. But the final place is called the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Turn back to Luke 16. We'll see where unbelievers go right now. Luke 16. I told you I was going to make you work. Luke 16. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. But here is a true story that Jesus tells to the Pharisees. And you know it. It's about the rich man and Lazarus. You know this story, don't you? Verse 19, there was a rich man, and he fared sumptuously. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table... Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died. Where does this poor man go? He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to paradise. And the rich man was also died, also died, and he was buried. And he goes to a different place, doesn't he? Where does he go? Verse 23. Does it say the lake of fire? Your Bibles will say hell, or your Bibles will say Hades. In hell he lifted up his eyes. And is this a good place? Is this just a holding tank? Are you asleep? Being in torment. He saw Abraham afar off. He saw this place of paradise and Lazarus in his bosom. So Lazarus evidently was a believer. And the rich man being in hell, being in torment, he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So it's a place of torment. It's separated from believers. It's a place you don't want to be. And it's a place of agony where there's fire. But Abraham answers in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now... How's Lazarus' condition described? He's being comforted, and you are in agony. Here's the contrast. And besides all this, between us there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you would not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now I want you to notice that 
Lazarus may desire, those who are in paradise may desire to relieve the torments of the damned in hell, but there's no desire for those who are in hell to do anything good. Now, they might want to escape there, but don't think whenever an unbeliever goes to hell, they get better all of a sudden. (laughs) Their depravity doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it gets worse. Look at verse 27. And he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. It's a place of torment. Hell, where unbelievers go right now. If you die without Christ, you go to this place. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now, is Abraham being just callous? No. Is the rich man being compassionate? No. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 30. What is his answer? What's Abraham saying? He has Moses and the prophets. He had the Word of God. They had the Word of God. Let them hear the Word. And the rich man in hell said, Nay, Father Abraham. No, Father Abraham. The Word of God is not sufficient. You've not warned them enough. God hasn't told them enough to be able to escape this place. But if someone goes from the dead, they will repent, show them a sign. And he said to him, if they do not listen to the Bible, to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that's true, isn't it? Still true today. Still true today. So if... The Bible says if you die right now as a believer, absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Where's the Lord Jesus tonight? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. We quoted that verse this morning from John. You have an advocate with the Father. He's at the right hand. Jesus Christ the righteous. You see the picture in the throne room where Jesus in the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, he goes and he is the one who is worthy to take the title deed and unleash the judgment on the earth. So to be absent from the physical body is to be present with the Lord. You'll be with the Lord spiritually. Your earthly body will go in the ground until the resurrection. And that's what we do when we commit a body to the ground. And one day it'll come up out of the ground. It doesn't matter what condition the body goes in. One piece, a million pieces. It's going to be resurrected. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We'll go be with Jesus one day. Where do unbelievers go? They go to a place called hell. A place where there's torment. And you read about that here in Luke 16. And while that's where the wicked dead goes, right now there's coming a final form called the lake of fire. Turn back to Revelation might be the last time I ask you to turn. Maybe. Turn to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 14. Now remember, they're thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them, that's to hide from from him on the throne. And I saw the dead. It was a resurrection. What's going to happen to that army that just dies and the bird eats their flesh? They're going to go to hell. They're going to go to that same place that the rich man is until this moment right here. 
I saw the dead, great and small, notice that same repetition, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Here is the judgment. Standing before the throne and the books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, that's the wicked dead, were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. You know what's going to happen? Those books are going to be opened. The record of your entire life. And all of your deeds are going to be read. And after that happens, there's no one that's going to have anything to boast in. And that's the judgment. Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and hell gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And so those who are in hell go to the place of torment, and one day the only time that they will escape torment through all eternity is this moment at the great white throne judgment when they're taken out of hell and they'll stand before the Lamb who is sitting on the great white throne and they'll be judged for their works. And then, verse 14, and death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire, the final form of torment. This is the second death. You're born once, praise God. We celebrate birthdays, don't we? And you know you need to be born a second time, right? And you're going to die once if you're a believer. But did you know if you're an unbeliever, you're going to die twice? You're going to be born once and you're going to die twice if you're an unbeliever. If you're a believer, you're going to be born twice and you're going to die once. Hallelujah. (laughs) This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, any place separated from the presence of God is horrible. But this is the final form of that hell. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. This verse in Revelation, the one that we read about the beast and the false prophet being thrown alive into the lake of fire, verse 20, single-handedly debunks annihilationalism. You understand that there are people who believe that God would, is, is too loving. There are people that believe God's too loving to send anybody to hell. Everybody's going to be saved. They're universalists. There are people that believe God can't make any distinction for any men. He's got to give everybody equal treatment. And then there are people who believe that God is so kind, there's no way that He could ever come up with something of of eternal torment. There has to be an end to it. And so you're annihilated. If you're an unbeliever, when you die, you just poof, go out of existence, never to live again. This verse single-handedly debunks that. They teach that God will just extinguish the wicked and not make them suffer forever, and that's not true. Mark nine forty eight. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, pluck it out. It, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into hell. Listen. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a solemn warning about sin. Because of the eternal nature of hell. 
whatever temporary pleasures you get from using your eyes sinfully, it's not worth the eternal suffering to be cast into hell. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Because what if you, what if you have as much money as Bill Gates times 20? You couldn't spend it in a lifetime anyway. But let's say you could. You could enjoy every pleasure that this world has to offer. And you had health your entire life. Let's say you live to 110. And you gain the whole world. And then you spend eternity in a place like this. Would it be worth it? Of course it wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't be worth it. So you say, well, there's Jesus talking about the worm that doesn't die and the fire that doesn't quench and some other things. So I'm really not convinced that this lake of fire is disproves annihilationalism. Look at Revelation 20, verse 10. Remember I told you the devil's going to be bound, and then there's going to be a kingdom. He's going to be bound for a thousand years. We'll see that next time. And at the end of that thousand years, he's going to be loosed. And then he's going to meet his end as well. Look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. And watch this, where the beast and the false prophet are also. When is this verse? It's the end of the thousand-year reign. So for a thousand years, the beast and the false prophet have been in the lake of fire when Satan finally ends up there. And does it end then? Look at the rest of the verse. And they will, that's all three of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You don't go out of existence. You remain. And just as you as a believer will have a body fit from heaven... You'll have, a, you'll have a body, if you're an unbeliever, able to stand the fires for all eternity. Well, let's turn back to our passage. Here's one final thing to look at. The beast and the false prophet are the first two to enter the lake of fire. They didn't get annihilated. They're still there, and they'll be there forever and ever. But the rest of the armies and the kings will be killed and they'll wait their spiritual resurrection, their judgment at the great white throne. But their bodies will be feasted on, verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And there's one final thing. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding a key of the abyss and a, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. After the battle, there is a binding. We'll see the dragon's apprehension next time. After the battle, there's a binding. When our final enemy is removed, 
the one who rebelled to begin with, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? You who have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mouth of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. The one who rebelled to begin with will be bound. The one who led a third of the angels in rebellion. The one who deceived Adam and Eve to begin with and incited the first rebellion of man against God, Genesis chapter 3. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you'll not eat of the, tree, the, tr- the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And he's still saying that to people today, isn't he? Maybe he's saying that to you tonight. I'll not surely die. I won't die today. i got more opportunity. I have another time, another opportunity. Don't believe his lies. Today's the day of salvation. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Temptation in his... In his, in his, in his original goal, I will be like the Most High. You'll know good and evil. The one who blinds the minds of men even today, 2 Corinthians 4. In whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, the one who raised the rebellion just put down in Revelation 19. He'll be chained until the end of the kingdom and then he'll be cast into the same lake of fire. As Matthew 25:41 says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And when that day comes, I'm going to say hallelujah, aren't you? I can remember Joe Hutchinson. I've told you before, I still remember him preaching in a big way. Saying that great white throne, whenever when Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire, I, I said, I know I'm just, I, I'm just dreaming in my own mind. But right before he goes in, I'm, I'm going to ask the Lord, Lord, can I just kick him one time before you throw him in? Don't you feel that way? I'd like to kick him one time. Probably more than once. But did you know you don't have to kick him? Jesus has already completely defeated him on the cross. All that has ever needed to be done has already been done. Your sin has been paid for past, present, and future. What you have to do is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you do that, you'll be saved. You won't face this day. But if you don't, sadly, that's what you have to look forward to. Let's pray.